0: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and uh, I'm live in York uh, at the UK Championship. A lot has happened since we last gathered together. Um, Mark Allen won the champion of champions with a very, very impressive display in the final against Judd Trump, 10-3. We had the UK Championship qualifying, which uh, hopefully you followed on YouTube and Facebook, and Discovery Plus, the drama of judgment day. That was a very intense few days, and now we're into the main event... The UK Championship itself at the Barbican in York. In the meantime, Ronnie O'Sullivan has had a film come out as well. And all this will be discussed in due course. And there's so much to discuss that there'll be two podcasts this week. This one, I've got 45 minutes to do this one before I've got to go and commentate again uh, this evening. So I'm doing this between sessions, 45 minutes, and then that's the cut off. So we're going to, we've been very kind to send your, U- your, your UK Championship memories, which is what I asked for a few weeks ago. So we're going to go through as many of those as possible. Then all the other business, We'll, we'll discuss later in the week At a time to be decided Probably by <laughs> by how long the actual snooker is um, So that's what's happening this week That's the bill of fare The, the order of play But uh, before that We have had a little bit of uh, follow up About uh, various matters And uh, we're going to start with The champion of champions Because we like to hear from People who've been to The uh, the snooker And have been to various venues Champion of champions Bolton at the White's Hotel, uh, and, uh, well, it's actually called the Tough Sheet Stadium, which in itself is, uh, you're basically risking the end of your career trying to say that. I didn't say it once on ITV, but anyway, uh, Sean has been to, Sean Robinson has been to uh, the tournament, and this is what he says, he says, a quick email regarding championing champions, I attended the night session on Thursday, Sean Murphy, Judd Trump, that was a great game, by the way. Uh, So he's got pros and cons. He says the pros. I thought Bolton was. He's still a good venue. It's fairly accessible. I think it should stay for the foreseeable. The ticket prices were reasonable. It was a great atmosphere. Temperature inside was bang on. Sometimes it can be either too cold or too hot. Format of the groups during the day I think works okay, unless you play second and finish late. Yeah, of course. I mean, most of the matches uh, in the evening seem to be won. I think possibly all of them were won by the player who, who played first. And Sean says the cons he says, as with most venues now, the drinks and food are ridiculous, but I suppose that's the venue, not Wilson if at all. It's, I would jump in there, Sean. Of course it's a matchroom room event. Um, but anyway, yes, the venue would set the definitely set the prices anyway. He says the seats seem to be getting closer and closer, slightly claustrophobic, to be fair. He says the merchandise is okay at best. It was similar to the players' championship I we went to last year, nothing to write home about. Overall, another great night out, to which I took my son with me for the first live event. First game, first frame, and Sean makes a century. He was amazed and loved the night also. He's also uh, not, not content to tell us that. Sean is uh, coming with another subject, uh, which is uh, benign meetings with snooker players. This is a, this is a uh, subject we've been doing for a number of months. Other podcasters have been doing it as well, but uh, we started it. Uh, and uh, I'm going to continue with it Uh, he says my one is from the Players' Championship in Wolverhampton earlier this year I was at the semi-final on the Saturday Sean Murphy again earlier in the day I was shopping as you do in the town centre as I'm gliding down the escalator like in a scene from a Hollywood rom-com going up the escalator in the opposite direction also like something from a Hollywood rom-com was the captain himself, Ali Carter I nodded my head in appreciation and just spouted the word Ali to which he nodded back in the same level of appreciation Anyway, to say this was where the rom-com ended is an understatement, but I thought it was a nice gesture anyway. I can hear the tumbleweeds already. Well, not at all. I that's, that's exactly what we're looking for. <laughs> if, if no words are basically spoken other than the name of the player, that's 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 bang on. I think, Sean. Thank you very much for your email. What I'm going to do, and we're nothing if not, you know, spontaneous. I'm actually going to go. I'm going to save some of the other emails to the end because what I realise is, I'll, if I do the UK Championship memories and we start time, we can squeeze some other emails in at the end. If we don't roll on to later in the week. Um, So Declan writes, it's late November and one of the comforting certainties of the sporting calendar is that the UK Snooker Championship is starting. A standout memory of the UK Championship for me comes from a classic last 16 match from 1985 where Alex Higgins took on Jimmy White at the Preston Guildhall. This was three years on from their classic semi-final at the Crucible and the two players seemed to be in a mood to entertain all and sundry. This was a case of two gunslingers going at it and each player it seemed to fend off the other's extravagance, seemed to feed off, I should say, the other's extravagance at the table. Uh, I bet, guess, uh, given the sponsor, Declan, you could, you could maybe call it the gunfight at the UK Coral. And that's quite a clever joke. Um, cleverer than the jokes we used to have in the, in the much missed section. Anyway, we'll continue with Declan's uh, uh, email. Apologies for interrupting. He says there were several standout shots in this, but one in particular is edged in the memory. As Higgins was going into the mid session interval, 3 1 up, he finished clearing up with an outrageous long ball black into the bottom left-hand pocket. Higgins blasted at the black and missed it in the jaws, only for the black to hop up at speed onto the left-hand side rail and proceed smoothly down the cushion, finally dropping into the left-hand middle pocket. I've seen it all now, exclaimed Clive Everton on commentary. The match is on YouTube and worth checking out for some of the special shot-making on display. I had a 6 by 3 table at home at this time, Of for months afterwards I tried to replicate this shot. Naturally, this was a tough assignment, thinking back I might have been a better club player if I'd stuck to simple basic plain ball striking instead of attempting to replicate the second most famous shot from the 1985 UK Championship i a misspent youth indeed and Declan there yes the second most famous of course I'm sure you mean the most famous was Willie Thorne's Miss Blue in the final I think it's interesting Declan actually there and thanks for the email the amount of people Alex Siggins inspired is you know incalculable but How many of them actually tried to play like him? Because if you were teaching someone to play snooker, you would not teach (laughs) that sort of outrageous style of play. You would teach the Steve Davis method, the reliable method. Um, If you try and play like Alex, you know, you, you may not get too far. But anyway, thank you for the email. John in Bishop Stortford. He says, I hope this finds you well. I wanted to write in following your request for listeners to share their memories of the UK Championship. I first attended the event in 2019 and watched the semi-final match between Steve Maguire and Mark Allen, which Stephen won 6-0 in what must be one of the most dominant displays in the best of 11. As I'm writing this, this made me wonder where indeed this ranks. And the only other comparison match that springs to mind is when Ronnie O'Sullivan beat Ricky Walden 6-0 at the Masters in 2014. When I checked Tracker, Ronnie scored a total of 557 points in that match versus Stephen's total of 548 where a player wins 6-0 in a best of 11. Can you or any of your listeners find any other matches that rival this number of points scored by the winner? This year will be the third time I attend the UK Championship. I can't wait, travelling up on the Saturday to watch the evening semi-final match and both sessions of the final before coming back home on the Monday. One question, I have an earpiece from this year's World Championship. Will it work in York, even if I replace the battery? I think the answer to that, John, is no. Um, from what we've heard from other uh, correspondents, I think you may have to buy a new one. Um, now... I I don't want to say that with too much certainty, in case you waste your money. But uh, I'm pretty sure pe- other people have said that there uh, yeah, that you have to buy a new earpiece, which I know some people are annoyed about. But uh, that's the way of the world, I guess. In terms of the uh, the score, the scoring you mentioned there, the, the one sided nature uh, of of that match. Well, we had the points out reply record set in that match, Roy O'Sullivan against Ricky Walden, 556. In any match, that's the record without opponent replying. So, I guess for that reason, that has to count as the most dominant display we've ever seen in, in a best of 11. Now, Ian Homeston, he says, one match that always comes to mind when the UK Championship comes around is Stephen Hendry losing 9-0 to Marcus Campbell in 1998. I'm not sure it's quite accurate to say I remember the match as it happened on the pre-televised stages, so I've never seen a single shot from it. But I think this is partly what makes it such an incredible moment. The fact that hardly anyone saw it happen only adding to the unreal quality. Similar, I suppose, to one 4 one four eight break, which also occurred at the UK championship, all week at the qualifying rounds. I was actually there for Henry Campbell and I remember yeah, it wasn't televised. So in the press room we would have like the score monitor on the on the um screen and I remember four 0 at the interval and people the raised eyebrows certainly, but you think, well, it's the best of seventeen, Henry will turn it round. Five or six nil you start to think, wow, this is huge and obviously it then ends at 8-0 and it's actually an overnight position because it was they were going to come back for the final session and he turned out the final frame the next day and, and at that point you're already writing the story that Henry's out, it's just a question of how heavy the defeat is but 9-0 an extraordinary uh, result and of course uh, it did cause him to go back to the drawing board with his game and later that season he won his seventh world title uh, Ian's not done yet, he says on the subject of Henry Campbell, the next meeting according to Q-Tracker was the 2009 Shanghai Masters Campbell was on the brink of whitewashing Hendry again as he went 4-0 up before Hendry came back to win 5-4. The only other match between them seems to have been the 1998 Scottish Open where Campbell also won. Here I think Q-Tracker may have the frame scores wrong as they don't seem to tally with the match result. However, a Herald Scotland match report from the Times says Campbell came back from 4-2 down to win 5-4. If this is the case, it means Campbell will have won 16 frames in a row against Hendry across the three matches, which is surely a record for most consecutive frames won against the great man. Well, it's an extraordinary thing to dig out there, Ian. And you may well be right. I've not delved back through all the records uh, to, to say with any certainty that that's right. But uh, there's a good chance, I would say. So thank you for uh, for delving that out for us. Phil Spidey, uh, a regular correspondent. He says, um, The UK Championship is almost upon us. I've got the week off work. I'm preparing to settle down for a great week of snooker. That's the way to do it, so Phil. He says, You asked for memories of the tournament. There are so many, but here are just a few of mine. The 1987 final between Steve Davis and Jimmy White, 16-14 to Davis possibly the first one I watched, and the standard throughout was incredible. I checked Q-Tracker, which shows Davis as having made five centuries, scoring which would be pretty impressive today, along with lots of other half centuries from both players. It's important to remember how good Davis was at potting and scoring, and how he could adapt his game to beat his opponent, regardless of their style. That match is, to some extent, one of the forgotten classics rarely mentioned nowadays. Then, Davis's run to the 2005 final was brilliant, I was desperate for him to win the title, but it wasn't to be. One of my favourite narratives in any sport is a great but past their very best champion enjoying an Indian summer. Interestingly, Davis was 48 at the time and his run to the final considered a big surprise. Yet if any of the class of 92 reached the final or even won the UK title this year, none of us would be particularly shocked. Not sure what that means really, but I think it is quite interesting. But Ding was mightily impressive in a victory and I really thought he'd go on to dominate and win multiple world titles. At 18, he seemed a complete player. Can't quite believe he's not yet become world champion. Finally, Stephen McGuire's performance against Mark Allen. This is again another shout for this in the 2019 semi-final. He was unplayable, with big breaks in every frame. I've no idea he'll win this time, which is the beauty of modern snooker. For some reason, I fancy Selby, but that is perhaps more to do with him being due a UK title than anything else. It's wide open. Who is your tip? Well... (laughs) Uh, we're, we're partway through thanks Phil we're partway through the tournament so it's, 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 it's kind of easy now to sort of not tip the people already out I did have a slight I don't know why I had a slight feeling for Mark Williams um, I, and there was no reason for it I was looking down the obvious contenders I mean Mark Allen was one of course he's out Judd Trump has got through we get to see a time recording Ronnie O'Sullivan or John Higgins I thought Barry Hawkins uh, was, was had a good chance this year but of course he as, as I record this he's still playing against Ben Williston it's wide open I'll say this though and it's, it's easy to say I know but I think it will be won by one of the top 16 the beast has been upsets already um, some of the qualifiers getting through it's asking so much to beat not only one top player but then another and another and another and another to win the title so it's probably going to be kind of one of the usual suspects Selby's a good shout possibly um, we'll see by the time you listen to this podcast he may be out we don't know now for Bonzi has also got in contact with the UK Championship Memories Uh he says, despite the slightly uninspiring sponsor, it's still the game's second greatest event. It's one in the eye for Mr Q, isn't it? He says, I've tried to narrow it down to number three. Two to three, sorry. 2001, my first as a proper snooker fan, and in the run-up to my GCSEs, I therefore had to follow it up from, a far, follow it from afar until the Sunday final. And I finally got the TV to myself and watched, surprised as O'Sullivan Sullivan won 10-1 without really having to be at his best. A bad night for Ken Doherty and the BBC, who had to fill time after a short second session. I remember I was in the pub but, uh, about, by about... Uh, well, probably about half past eight there. Uh, that's it, that's it. By the way, speaking of which, and all the excitement last night, the uh, the fire alarm uh, at the Barbican. Um, we were just about to start the evening session. But, funnily enough, our commentary is quite high up in the Barbican. I was walking up into the foyer, you go through the public foyer, and you could smell smoke, and people were sort of saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's a bit of, smell of smoke. And I think people were wondering, was it like a smoke machine? Were they trying to make an atmospheric thing? No, it turned out it was a fire. <laughs> There's actually a small electrical fire. Now, as luck would have it, the fire station is right across the road from the venue, so the the, the fire fire people didn't have far to travel. We were all evacuated, but here's the thing: the uh, the sort of snooker people, the players, the media, the officials, you know, the TV crew, we all had to go to the local pub, um, the Edinburgh Arms, which is a well-known pub in these parts where snooker people go, and uh, we had to wait there. I've never seen so many people from the snooker circuit in a pub without buying a drink. <laughs> all the sort of people you'd expect to have a few pints down them obviously couldn't do that because they were working there was one poor chap who actually it was just come, came along to watch the darts on the telly you know unassuming suddenly there's a the same buffet there's Stephen Hendry and Dennis Taylor and Steve Davis and Sean Murphy and all these people anyway it wasn't too long we were back in the staff of the Barbican and the Wilson and security staff did a brilliant job just shepherding everybody out very calmly keeping everybody safe uh, you know they are trained for sort of major incidents And they played a blinder, so I wanted to credit them and obviously the emergency services as well for the great job they did. But anyway, that was the excitement last night. Of course, it meant an 8 o'clock start, which meant a late finish, but these things can't be helped. Uh, Oh, yes, well, Alpha Bonzi is uh, continuing here. Number two, 2011. Being at a loose end in life at the time, I was looking forward to another week of best of 17s until the news came through that we're now going to be best of 11. I was even more puzzled after the promises... I've now been able to show finishes to every match on every scheduled session. That just into the deciding frame, of the Trumpo Sullivan last 16 match, the BBC came off to show an antiques program. <laughs> well, spoiler alert: I think Trump won that match because he won the tournament. Here's the thing about, um, people still say it should be best of 17. Which I understand, but actually you get more snooker in best of 11s. You know, most matches we've seen already are quite long. You're going to get maybe you know at least nine, possibly 10 frames. Best of seventeen, you'll get eight frames in the first session, and if it's a runaway, you might get four or five at night. So actually, best of eleven, you get to see more snooker, you get to see a finish every session. Uh, now, whether that the length should uh, increase towards the end, that's an argument. But again, you know, BBC One will be showing the afternoon semi-final on Saturday. Do, would they want to show just an eight-frame start on BBC One? I don't think so. They want to show the end. So that's the kind of push-pull. Uh, all I can say is it's been full, so the public seem to be enjoying it. I used to like the best of 17s, but I'm not going to be, you know, joining marches in the street to get them back. I quite like this format now. Uh, 2021, Alpha says, not being able to watch much of the week's action due to work But commits. We see, we've got a sort of trajectory of Alpha's life here. We've gone from his school exams to being frankly listless, it seems, to now having a, a job. So it's, it's a feel-good story. Uh, he says, uh, having not been able to watch much of the week's action due to work commitments, my final day before I left that job coincided with my birthday in the Kyron Wilson-Ronnie O'Sullivan final That was a great match, by the way. He says, which I was able to catch the last couple of frames of after being let off early with a tin of sweets as my farewell pleasant present. So, in fact, he, he leaves the job there. That's a, that's a twist, isn't it? I didn't see coming. <laughs> Hopefully you're in gainful employment now, Alpha, and thank you, as ever, for the email. I actually thought there were more emails on the UK Championship, but I may have mislaid some. Which wouldn't be a first uh, But if I find them again we'll return to them But in the meantime we will uh, move on to other things And uh, maybe come back to this later if I, can, <laughs> if I can find the emails I'm sure there were more So if you haven't read yours out then apologies uh, We'll move on to John Hill He says just a quick note regarding the state of official merchandise and offer from World Snooker Tour I believe snooker lends itself naturally To merchandising of various sorts Due to its distinctive colours and the triangle of red setup. However World Snooker Tour doesn't seem to be taking advantage of this it will be an easy place to start with various products, phone covers, stationery, bottles, mugs, clothing, etc. in each of the distinctive snooker colours. As for the online store, well, it looks amateur at best and the amount of products on offer is woefully poor. I'm hopeful that the promise changes are coming with the new people starting within WST and this is just another area that needs a drastic upgrade. Thank you, John. Um, I suppose that the, the virtue of the, the colour balls is you, you could collect a set of something. I don't know what exactly. Maybe beer mats or you know fridge magnets in each of the colours. I don't know. <laughs> I had a look today at the merchandise stand at the Barbican, which seems a little uh, more um, sort of stuffed with things than maybe some previous ones I've seen. Um, you know, the only problem is, I mean, I looked at this sort of clothing range all with WST branding on. Now, with the best will in the world, I don't know how many people really want to buy a T-shirt with the logo of Wilson on. They might want to buy one, you know, that's associated with Ronnie O'Sullivan or Judd Trump or Selby or Robertson, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's the issue, really. It's how do you make more of the players rather than, you know, wearing... Do people really want to wear clothing with the branding of any sports body on? I don't know. I mean, it seems unlikely. You do see some people wearing them, and it is a keepsake. There are other things there. You can buy other sort of stuff as well. So it's not... It, it seems more going on than there was before. I'm sure that will increase um, because it is an area that I know they are looking at. So hopefully, uh, you know, in due course, there'll be more to buy. Now then, Tom Cole says, I'm a long-time listener and always appreciate the more trivial moments on the podcast. With this in mind, two things occurred to me, which may be too trivial to warrant your time. Uh, listen, you're you obviously not listening to many episodes, Tom, it's all trivial. Uh, and I say that against myself, not any listeners. He says, the first is I have noticed that players often wear thick, heavy metal watches on their bridging hand. I remember as a boy playing on my own small table and ripping the cloth with my watch strap. Does this ever come up? And all the table fitters ever nervous about a player ripping the cloth when getting down on a shot. Well, I haven't seen that happen uh, with a watch, but uh, I mean the, the, the table fitters, I'm sure are watching closely. But uh, Marco Fu had that extraordinary watch that time, didn't he? It was like Big Ben on his, on his wrist. But it's not happened yet. He said the second was when I was at the theatre recently. While I was waiting for the show to start, my mind wondered and and my mind wondered and wondered if there'd ever been a play about snooker, given the World Championship is in a the theatre. Perhaps that is an answer in itself. But I could imagine a play about snooker in the 1980s, perhaps. As a playwright yourself, have you ever thought about writing one? How could it be done? Well, Tom, there was. um, A few years ago, it was at the Crucible. It was called uh, The Nap. It was written by Richard Bean. It was directed by Richard Wilson, Victor Melju from One Foot in the Grave. I don't believe it and all that. It starred Jack O'Connell. It was a big deal. And it went to Broadway, actually. So it has been done. Uh, John Astley, uh, they needed a snooker player in the play he played the snooker player Um, and Ahmed al Said played uh, played the snooker player on Broadway so it has been done Um, I did speak to someone at the Crucible about sort of a play about snooker and they said (laughs) you won't be surprised they've been offered a lot of them and obviously I think the other 50 weeks of the year they kind of try and get away from snooker a little bit and concentrate on being what they are which is a superb regional theatre now I've had some follow up on the Ronnie O'Sullivan Edge of Everything documentary um not all a bit serious he's got to be said Christine Clements says here and this is her takeaway from the film did you see the size of the tin of Quality Street Roddy was eating from well that's why that's it's not exactly Barry Norman but thank you for the observation Christine and, uh, but Matthew McConnell has watched it twice and so he's got two emails based on the first and second viewing so this interesting stuff I'm going to read these out he says I was eagerly anticipating this is Matthew here I was eagerly anticipating it the early reviews hyped it up and it didn't disappoint I really enjoyed it As an avid Ronnie and Snooker fan, I thought the best part of the film was probably the last 30 minutes or so when it focused on the world semi and final. This provided the best behind-the-scenes insight, in my opinion, and really felt like it was breaking new ground. The earlier parts are definitely going to be more interesting to the casual fan who needs the explainer of Ronnie's life. Although even within that, some great gems were uncovered, like Ronnie Senior's line of tell my boy to win after his guilty verdict. The pressure that must have been heaped on his son's shoulders is unimaginable. Overall, a fantastic exploration of this amazing sportsman. I will mention some minor gripes I had with this film. One which has been mentioned by others, including perhaps yourself, is the lack of investigation of the referee incident in the world final. The camera shot we get as Ronnie leaves the table is predominantly of his head and shoulders, so it's difficult to tell if there was any gesture made by Ronnie which Olivia Martell picked up on, or if it was a misunderstanding. The surprise on Ronnie's face does imply he had no idea what the ref was talking about it's left very open-ended I'll jump in there I'd say two things uh, Matthew the first is I was in the arena that day I didn't see any gesture but the second thing I would say is you do hear and it's, it's a fact he's on the film you do hear O'Sullivan swearing um, in the arena under his breath It's picked up by the microphone so it's sort of amplified but you can't be warned for that if a referee hears that and Matt Selt I think in the first round against Mark Selby was actually warned for that so it, that you can actually be warned for that now I don't think that's what Olivia was talking about when he went over to speak to him. But, you know, that, that complicates it a little bit, I would say. Uh, we continue with uh, Matthew says, the second thing I'd say is that I was a little disappointed. They didn't include the 2021 World Grand Prix and the 2022 Tour Championship in the film, as I felt they were the most important tournaments that season for O'Sullivan. In the World Grand Prix, he won his first title for quite a while, beating Robertson in a rare game where he considered, where he was considered the underdog. To me, that was a significant victory, and I'm surprised it wasn't mentioned. It also demonstrated some of Ronnie's genius in that he was on the rack for much of the match and still able to flip the switch and produce magic out of nowhere to win. Shame this wasn't illustrated to the viewers and may also have foreshadowed events on the final day of the World Final. The Tour Championship later that season was also important because it was the first sign that Sullivan was properly in the form for a crack at Sheffield after his two fantastic performances against Williams and Robertson. I thought it might have been a nice stopping point on the way to telling the tale of the World Championship. I presume they simply had to cut stuff for time or they felt the Scottish Open and Masters served the film better thematically, narratively, or they simply had more coverage from those events. I think actually, uh, Matthew, it's just they didn't actually film every event with him, so I don't, I'm not sure they're actually at the World Grand Prix or the Tour Championship. It literally comes down to that. Obviously, they have to they have other things that they're doing, and they have to sort of choose when to film and, and, and build the story from that. So it may that just have been they, they didn't have any footage. He says, Finally, I thought we could have seen a small bit more of the actual matches here and there, i.e. proper top-down views of the table, to show some of Ronnie's best shots or tell the story of the match a little more completely for casual fans. However, these are tiny critiques. I loved it. It's probably not the last time I'll watch it. If you have Prime, it's a no-brainer to view it. If you don't, it's worth paying the subscription. We're just on that, and we'll come to this in a minute, because we've had a, an email from America, but uh, it seems you can only actually watch it at the moment on Amazon Prime in UK and Ireland, which obviously is not ideal, but we'll come on to that shortly. Because Matthew, having watched it the first time, uh, then watched it a second time, <laughs> and this is, you don't hear this in film reviews. You know, you hear Mark Kermode giving his, you know, giving his latest on I don't know Saltburn or something, but you don't hear him coming back the next week and saying I've watched it again and this is now my second review. You just get one review, so this is this is a, a, a different thing. Uh, so Matthew's watched it again. He said. Uh, I've watched it a second time it was as enjoyable as the first if not more so I've changed my mind on the amount of actual snooker they decided to show from the top down view I actually think they got the balance right with that one on second viewing it's not really about that aspect of things in the end secondly I appreciated their selection of the Scottish Open and Masters more than the first time I heard an interview with Sam Blair the director where he mentioned that, that when they began working with Ronnie he had distanced himself from the emotional side of the sport and wasn't super invested in winning the way he was by the end of the documentary After hearing that, I saw this much more the second time, even though I'm sure a lot of people picked up on it straight away. The Scottish Open illustrates the distance from the sport, where he mentions not really being that annoyed at losing to Higgins and the fact he's very chilled out prior to the matches. The Masters shows the bug has bitten him uh, a bit, again as he expresses some nerves before the tournament and says it's one of the few times recently where he wishes he was still playing in the tournament after losing to Robertson. This then culminates in the World Championship where he's in a great mental turmoil as he f- becomes fully immersed in wanting to perform and win. While I still think the inclusion of the World Grand Prix and Tour Championship would have been nice, I definitely see the rationale for the tournaments they pick picked more clearly. It shows the progression of his investment in winning and the toll that takes him on, and the toll that takes on him excellently. Thank you, Matthew. That's brilliant, actually. Very interesting to hear. You know, two sides there of the same coin, which is your views based on a second view. The film has got a lot of good um, feedback, I think, from within Snooker, a lot of people talking about it, and uh, most of the comments I've heard have been positive, including my own, if you, I reviewed it last week. But it's not all good news. But we've got Dave Daly here now, of course, he is uh, from the Ox Billiards Club in Seattle, and he says it's time for another little rant about Snooker being too UK centric despite the growth in China and other parts of the world i have been looking forward to seeing the Ronnie documentary for ages and was thrilled when it was announced that it would be on Amazon Prime on the 23rd of November. It was exciting to see pundits mention how good it was and how it should help in marketing the sport further. I got up early on the day, Seattle being eight hours behind the UK, to some text from UK friends saying I had a cameo in it. I show up in the front row of the final against Trump when Trump comes back to 1411. 11 In any case, I turned on Amazon Prime and lo and behold, there was no doc- Ronnie documentary listed. I then went to Amazon and tried to stream it from there, it told me it was region-restricted and only available in the UK. I have friends in Australia and Canada who also woke up to the disappointment of the documentary not being available in their region. Needless to say, with a bit of resourcefulness, I was able to find and watch it through some less-than-legal means, but it took time, it was a hassle, and I had to watch it on a PC instead of a big TV, which was my original plan. So much for marketing the sport. The casual snooker fan or someone new to snooker outside of the UK would have no chance of stumbling across it gain some interest in the sport. I really don't understand the continued dichotomy of espousing snooker to be a global sport and then continue to focus on the UK market at the detriment of others. It's a shame and another missed opportunity. I'm guessing that Amazon only bought the rights to the UK market. I'd have to assume it's available in China uh, through some other broadcast rights, but could be wrong. These are the things that need to be fixed if snooker ever has a chance of making it to the Olympics, etc. Anyway, rant over. I hope you're keeping well. I'll see you in April 2024. My flights to Sheffield are booked. Well, that's great to know, Dave. That that bit is apart from uh, all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, in terms of obviously, this is not nothing to do with the snooker authorities. This is um, this is down to uh, the, the filmmakers, the distribute the distribu- distributors. <laughs> I'll get the word right. And you know, Amazon have picked up the rights, as you say, in the UK and Ireland, not elsewhere. I guess it doesn't mean it won't be available elsewhere, but when and where, I couldn't say. But it's a fair point in general. We are a UK-centric sport still, really. Um, Maybe you could argue European-centric, and obviously China is a massive place, but there are many other parts of the world. And we found this out last week. I was doing the Judgment Day commentary, and so many of the messages we got were great messages from people in North America and Australia and various parts of the world where they do struggle to find live snooker and enjoy it and they were able of course to do that on the World Snooker Tour Facebook and U- YouTube pages for free and seem to really kind of appreciate that opportunity to do that and we need to, you're quite right, we need to make sure that as much snooker content is as available to as many people around the world as possible so it's unfortunate that this film at the moment is not, hopefully that will be resolved soon and everyone can enjoy it I think we'll do one more and then as I say we'll back later in the week uh, for more What has now become a two-part special. Uh, Whether it's special is for other people to judge. Anyway, Paul Regan writes... uh, He says, First, if getting through this email feels a bit more Thorburn than Rocket, I apologise. Second, thanks for the words in all the formats that you provide for our sport. It really is much appreciated. Well, thank you, Paul. That is appreciated by me. He says, I'm a long-time pub pool player who fairly recently moved from London to Somerset and couldn't quite believe the number of local village halls that hide a snooker club. I joined one and have slowly being drawn back into a maddeningly difficult big table game. Like many who orbit your friendly and insightful podcast, nostalgia fuels my interest. I've vague childhood memories the 85 final and various of Jimmy White's World Championship attempts. Dad bought us a six-foot table for, for the front room. We got tickets to local exhibitions with the stars of the day that weren't too hungover to turn up. Uh, I'm not going to read that out, actually, <laughs> because it, it may be libelous, the next sentence. Anyway, he says, Snooker was also often on the telly when Grandad would visit. YouTube makes reliving these moments easy, as I've been learning the intricacies of Snooker to improve my own game. I've been rewatching epic frames and matches from those golden decades. Gradually, my searches for highlights have moved forward, through the fallow years where I'd turned away from the sport, from the rise and rise of the class of 92, through to relative newcomers like Trump, who, it turns out, cut his teeth, Local club not far from me. Naturally, I've now ended up with a Discovery subscription to monitor the modern championships. It's striking to me how much TV punditry has changed during the years. True, there's a certain fondness for the fresh faced David Icke in the days before his shape shifting lizards arrived and took over the world with 5G phone masts, while Ted Lowe's trademark gravelly whisper still seems as synonymous with the sport as ebony ash and green bays. But let's be honest, The cast of commentators in those days did little more than simply describe what we could all see with our own eyes, often leaving long pauses for the crowd to fill, the coughing and throat clearing typical of the Embassy and Benson and Hedges' torment years. As the years advanced, so too did the knowledge behind the microphone. Perhaps it's because more players brought their voices uh, as they retired. Maybe it's just that good commentators, like yourself, now strive for a deeper understanding of the game. More time is taken to discuss strategy and match play, giving the viewer a clearer insight into the minds of those holding the cues, The best pundits also have the ability to zoom out mid-match and provide historical context to some, and Mr Hendry, you're forgiven, even research the players we're all watching. So my question is this, what might we be missing out on right now? We've come this far with describing the game since the golden age of telly snooker What happens in 20 or 30 years' time when we activate our VR implants to re-watch that classic 8th O'Sullivan World Championship victory from back in the 2020s? What new techniques might be making the commentary of today seem outdated or lacking? Or have we already reached the peak of your profession? One final thought. The obvious answer to this is analytics from virtual reality Hawkeye-type systems. And maybe that's the conclusion we draw. But this is more of a question about the craft of your vocation than it is about technology, which, given the views you've already aired on what we might call paralysis through over-analysis, may come as a relief. And, of course, none of this is in any way criticism. Your punditry, just like the podcast... He's a peerless companion to the sport. Please do keep up the good, great work. Paul, that's very kind. It's a big question, I think. <clears throat> I mean, what I would say is sports commentary in general, so let's keep it across all sport, it has evolved to a degree, but it's basically still the same. You know, you look at football, it's still the sort of the, 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 the match caller sitting alongside a player who adds technical insight. You know, I mean, cricket on the radio... The sort of cast of voices and the, the diversity of voices has changed, but it's essentially the same thing. It's describing each delivery, and then adding interesting insights in between. Horse racing is still about calling home the the, 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 the horses in order, as it is with an athletics race. Um, you know, golf country, uh, I guess, has become a bit more analytical and technical, and I think that's that's maybe what's happening in a lot of sports. Tennis used, I mean, at, at Wimbledon in the eighties. you'd know, you see a great shot and dear old Dan Maskell would sort of say, ooh I say and that was kind of it, whereas now it's a a lot more kind of analytical, now whether viewers want too much of that or whether they feel they have enough of it, depends on the individual, some people want a lot of that, some people just want to kind of be left alone to enjoy what they're watching in terms of how it can change I mean I think you're talking, I don't know whether you're talking specifically about commentary or, or the general punditry because they're different commentary I think probably will not change that much. I think it will continue to be essentially what it's become, which is a mix of analysis of shots, context of what's happening, and hopefully an informative sort of guide to the match for the viewers. Side punditry, I think, has changed a bit. We see now in Eurosport, Alan McManus and Neil Folds are both excellent at the touchscreen. They're analysing specific moments in frames and in matches, explaining why the shots are being played, how they're being played, maybe how they could have been played better. But but identifying key moments rather than just sort of general analysis, actually picking out and explaining key moments. And Jimmy White, I mean, it's sort of <laughs> it, it's kind of become a fun part of the broadcast. But actually, when he physically demonstrates how the shots are played, I think that's really valuable. You've seen it played in the match, then Jimmy takes a bit of time to explain how to play it and has a go himself. And sometimes he gets them, sometimes he doesn't. It's not about that. It's about actually just trying to explain to people. You know why these shots are being played and how they're being played. So I think maybe away from the sort of the matches uh, when the matches are not on, maybe it will advance a little bit. And I guess technology w- would come into that. And who knows what what you know what's to be invented and how that could work. And maybe there'll be there'll come a time when you know you could you could almost sort of mock up someone actually playing a shot that's been played in a match, kind of almost in the match themselves. You know, there's all sorts of technology that. That is available and will become available, Um, but I suppose the the question is, does it become overkill? Um, I mean, when I grew up watching sport, there was a program called Grandstand on Saturday afternoons, okay, and people will remember that fondly. And it was a sports kind of magazine, and you would have twenty minutes of table tennis, you'd have half an hour of of boxing, you'd have forty minutes of snooker. There might be highlights of basketball. There'd be all sorts of sports, and essentially, it was just that's what you got, and. It wasn't hyped up, and it wasn't over-explained. You saw it, and then you moved on. And there was a lot to be said for that. And to a degree, I guess you get that in the Olympics now, on a sort of bigger scale. How much analysis people want, I don't know. Um, I think some people would be fascinated and know the ins and outs of every shot played. And other people, frankly, just want to be left alone to enjoy a nice game of snooker. So I I suppose the answer, Paul, is everyone's different. But I, I think you're right yourself. You identify that technology will be... The way things move on, and and, and things will move on, um, and it'll be interesting to see exactly uh, in what direction. I will do one more, because it's from regular correspondents, Mark and John, and it's actually on a similar theme. He says, uh, they say, while commentating, do you make a conscious effort to hide any bias of the person you most like to win, or are you genuinely completely neutral? We've never been able to tell if you're supporting a particular player, and as fans, we find it hard to imagine how you wouldn't support certain players. Secondly, we're thinking about... Well, well, I'll come back to that, because you say, secondly, we're thinking about things we change in snooker. If we had three wishes from the snooker gods, we're calling it our light-hearted snooker triple wish list. Number one, a limit on you about snookers that can be played for at the end of the frame, maybe three. There's been a lot of talk about this. I actually heard a great suggestion. Um, I think it came from Steve Davis, but Joe Perry was, was telling me about it. He actually said the one thing no one's ever considered, you just get rid of the free ball. Because if you get rid of the free ball they're not going to play on, on the last red if they're 40 odd behind because it's very unlikely if you're 50 behind on the last red and there's no chance of a free ball that probably solves that one I'm not saying I agree with it and actually I'm saying I don't agree with it because I, I, don't, I don't really want the game changed but that's an idea that kind of I've never heard before uh, anyway number two return of the entertainer song at the end of a tournament while showing various flukes and funny moments funny enough uh, we were watching today I was watching it with Sean Murphy I won't mind me saying uh, on his phone, uh, various montages from days gone by. The uh, the Barbara Streisand way we were. We watched that one. We watched the Queen days of our lives, and we were kind of saying it'd be great if those came back because um, they were they were quite emotional watches actually. You see the old faces, and you have your memories of, of when you were watching that as, as it was broadcast. You know, we're talking over thirty years ago. Uh, Ray Stubbs, of course, did the way we were. He cut that together when he was a producer. Um, but anyway, that's the entertainment is slightly different. But yeah, I mean they, they were they were good fun, and they're all on YouTube. And number three, we'd like to see Jamie Clark and David Grace get into the top 16. They're both lovely people who we've met outside the venues and always have time to say hello or chat. Does anyone else have a light-hearted snooker triple wish list? It might be a fun new segment in the run-up to Christmas. Mark and John there, but they ask at the start, and do please get in contact, com, if you do have anything to add to that. But they ask at the start, um, do I make a conscious effort to hide any bias? I don't make any effort. For a simple reason, I don't have any... um, Real bias towards anybody And I mean that, I know that sounds, oh people say, oh of course you do Let's be clear, there are snooker players Who I prefer watching Compared to some other snooker players There are snooker players who I would prefer to spend time with Compared to other snooker players But when the match is on, it's a game of snooker And you have to show respect to both players And the only real performance I'm interested in Is my own There's always going to be a narrative To whoever comes through There's always a reason why someone winning is good for them, beyond just winning a match or winning a tournament, there'll be something in the background, and that's what you have to hone in on, you know, when you're commentating. I don't have favourites, I just don't, I don't support anybody, I'm always happy, you know, if a certain player wins, like Anthony Hamilton when he won the German Masters, that was brilliant, you know, because we've kind of known him a while and, and, and like him and actually interviewed him at in that tournament uh, on the podcast. Um, but as the match was going on, I had to show respect as well to Ali Carter, who was his, his opponent, and I would have been happy for him, because on, for another reason, that would have been good for him. Um, I think it's very important, and Clive was an absolute master of this, of course, as he was at most things, Clive Everton. It's very important to take a sort of solid journalistic approach to it. You are there to commentate on the match. It's nothing to do with you who wins and loses, and you have to keep that um, for credibility's sake, I think. So I'm pleased to hear you say... You don't pick up any any bias because I I, I it's not that I don't I try not to show any I don't I genuinely do not have any I don't care who wins or loses really until it's over and then it becomes a great story but I suppose the professional thing to do is just get sort of engrossed and caught up in the match um, and yeah that that hopefully uh, that hopefully sort of comes across and it's also important to say off table things shouldn't come into it either. You know, it's, it's, it's not about whether that player's, you know, some misogynist or whether that player voted Brexit or whatever it is. it is. Doesn't matter. They're playing snooker, and you're commentating on a snooker match, and it's about what's happening in that arena at that time. That's all you should be focused on. And I can't speak for anyone else, but when I'm commentating, I'm not supporting anybody. I'm trying to do the job that I've been paid to do, and do it professionally. Obviously, sometimes you get moments that you get caught up in. Jimmy White last year qualifying for the UK. There's no doubt you understood what that meant to so many people. So you have to reflect that, but it's nothing to do with me. I'm just an observer, you know, and that's, that is how you have to be. And thankfully that's, you know, that's been my approach really ever since I started. Um, we'll leave it there. We're back with, with more. So if you haven't heard your email read out, it will be, and you can still send them in, of course, snookasinpodcast.mail.com. I'm going to get back over for the evening session. Um, got to say as well, the World Snooker Tour done a fantastic job with the with the uh, event again this year. I actually think it looks better than last year. Um, I thought it was great last year, but the set is fantastic. Um, really modern looking. Um, you know, that the backstage is good. It's a great venue. It's a great tournament. And the prestige of the UK Championship has definitely been re- restored with the format change last year, with what's been thrown at it. I guess the only thing you could say about that is it'd be nice to think that this could be thrown at other tournaments as well. I absolutely understand why so much, uh, so many resources are thrown at the big tournaments, you know, the big three, I suppose we're talking about. Um, the problem is, in comparison, sometimes some of the other tournaments can look a little bit kind of faded. And that's the problem. You're comparing, you know, maybe a home nations or, or one of those events to one of these big tournaments. You can see the difference. So I guess the challenge now is to build up the other tournaments and build up the circuit Full stop, but I think they're exciting times actually at the moment. We've got um, sort of rumours about other um, potential tournaments next season, and, and we'll see what happens with those. But the, there's, a, there's a good feeling backstage. I mean, the, the, there may be some problems coming with the players' contracts and all that, and we'll no doubt to address that nearer the time whether the players are going to sign it and what it means if they don't, and all the rest of it. But to be honest, I'm not interested in spending the UK Championship talking about that. We're here to focus on the snooker. It's been a great start to the week. And we'll reflect more later in the week um, in part two. So for now, uh, thanks for listening. Enjoy the coming snooker attractions. Uh, And as we always say, until later in the week, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.